From Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Thursday, October the 22nd, 2020, and uh, glad to have you with us this morning. We're going to be speaking with uh, Sue Minter of the Capstone Community Action Agency uh, serving central Vermont here this morning, as well as a Brittany Sperber from the uh, Skinny Pancake uh, small uh, group of restaurants here in Vermont about uh, a new program designed to uh, get food to folks who need it in this coronavirus uh, pandemic uh, situation we're having. In, and uh, I think that's going to be an interesting conversation. We're going to go the whole first hour with that. Uh, later on, I've, I've got a... Uh, uh, we're going to be, I think, talking with one of our CBS News correspondents uh, right after the top of the show break. And then the... Um, we're going to have uh, a conversation about Vermont's and the University of Vermont's uh, outsized role in the Peace Corps. We've got three guests coming on, uh, folks who have served in the Peace Corps or are uh, tied to uh, efforts to promote the Peace Corps around the university. We've got Travis Reynolds, Jane Kolodinsky, and uh, Mary Bielecki joining us in the uh, second hour of the program to talk about the update us on what's going on with the Peace Corps. Vermont has a big footprint there, and uh, relative certainly to our small size, and so we'll talk about that in the uh, second hour. But uh, first, let's get into our conversation with uh, Sue Minter and Brittany Sperber. Sue's with, uh, as I mentioned, Capstone and Brittany with the the Skinny Pancake, uh, tasty food and beverages uh, available in uh, Montpelier and I think up in Burlington and maybe we'll, we'll find out for Brittany where all they have outposts. But uh, let's go to Sue first and and um, and get uh, good morning, Sue. Thanks for joining me. Good morning, Dave. Thanks so much for having me on. So give me a, re, uh, a sort of an overview here. Um, I, I understand that you are going to be making a sort of a formal announcement later today, but we thought we'd get a sneak peek in advance here on the Dave Graham Show. And uh, what is going on? Well, I guess, Dave, there's so much going on, and uh, Capstone Community Action, as many of your listeners know, really has been working since 1965 to build ladders out of poverty for Vermonters, and mm-hmm. we really use innovative approaches and uh, new partnerships to to address a range of problems um, that uh, and struggles that many Vermonters have, and I guess... Of course, now with the pandemic, um, those struggles and our efforts uh, to meet them have really grown exponentially. Um, You know, early on in the pandemic, I believe when we last spoke, um, we were very instrumental in building a kind of regional response uh, team, uh, particularly focused on the needs of the most vulnerable Vermonters who we at Capstone serve every day. Um, and that was about uh, essentially making sure uh, folks who uh, were housing insecure and homeless um, had, in fact, a place and a way to, quote, stay home and stay safe. So really we've been on that mission ever since, uh, although it's been evolving. And, you know, a few weeks ago <clears throat> at Capstone's off, uh, central office in Barrie, we had a uh, a celebration of sorts. It's a COVID safe celebration. But, you know, early on, we have a community kitchen academy um, that does uh, both producing meals for uh, folks at our food shelf, but also training people in the food industry 
uh, to work at places like Skinny Pancake that we'll talk about later. But uh, immediately uh, when COVID struck, our community kitchen academy got repurposed into a mass feeding uh, hub. And we worked with our um, partner agencies at Downstreet Community Housing and our Good Samaritan Haven to both uh, rehouse uh, folks who were housing insecure and homeless, uh, and the state really stepped up to um, house folks in area hotels. In fact, in the Barry area, seven different hotels and motels. Uh, and there are still actually 300 uh, folks in those hotels. And Capstone was a core to helping to make sure they had healthy meals, um, both producing those meals at our Kitchen Academy and working with partners, uh, restaurants, and uh, the faith community, Salvation Army, Enough Ministries, to produce those meals. And we relied on volunteers uh, to distribute those meals. And they did that for seven months, three times a day, uh, seven days a week. And we celebrated 81,000 meals that were distributed by our area volunteers to those very needy um, families and individuals. So, so that's been a big focus, food and access to food for those in need. Um, and I think you know we also constantly work on helping people in winter months stay warm. And, and we'll be back later to talk about our uh, what we're doing since the Wheels for Warmth program, which usually happens this weekend every year, but this year with COVID, it's not safe to host this event. So we can talk about ways to help families in need there. But but today we're announcing um, a really innovative uh, program called the Vermont Everyone Eats program. And this is um, something that is a way to not only serve uh, Vermonters who may be food insecure, particularly because of COVID, but to invest in our area restaurants who are also struggling dramatically just to survive in these times. And um, it was really a program that began with the Vermont legislature who um, supported this uh, innovative initiative uh, with a $5 million investment of the CARES Act funding. Uh, and in three months across the state, we already have over 100 restaurants participating. We have what are called regional hubs in all 14 counties uh, and 138 different partners involved in that. So here in our region, which I'm talking about Capstone's service area, that includes Washington County, Lamoille County, and Orange County, we are the central Vermont hub <laughs> for Vermont Everyone Eats, and it's a wide lens of who we are. Capstone has partnered with Skinny Pancake, and you'll talk to Brittany. Uh, they are organizing the restaurant piece of this, and the partnership that Capstone serves is how do we get the meals to the people who need it? Um, and right here we have 12 different um, restaurants in central Vermont and uh, 38 different uh, distribution partners. Uh, later today we'll be having a press conference at the Central Vermont Medical Center, and that's because they are one of a, a host of partners who are dedicated to using this program, Everyone Eats, 
to help uh, restaurants provide healthy meals for uh, families and individuals who actually can use food as medicine, uh, prescribing specific healthy meals to address and combat diseases like hypertension and diabetes. So it's um, so all of these things are combining. And uh, not only Central Vermont um, Medical Center, but we are working with community health centers in Lamoille, in Plainfield, in Bradford, throughout our uh, area uh, to help advance this idea. We're also partnering with local food shelves and, and community partners from as far away as Wolcott, Vermont, to Rochester, um, to Tunbridge, um, and Chelsea. This is uh, a really great program uh, that's reaching out to uh, the folks who normally serve um, clients who need uh, meals and whose demand is growing exponentially uh, because of this virus. Wow, and and uh, I mean, it, it, it does sound like this ties together some elements which really uh, uh, have needs in their own ways. I mean, obviously, our restaurant economy needs a big boost, and the uh, folks out there who are in need of food and uh, uh, in steps a capstone to try to link them up and make that work and uh, that's pretty amazing. Uh, do we have uh, Brittany Sperber from Skinny Pancake on the line with us? I don't yes. hear... Yes, Dave, I'm here. <laughs> oh, Sorry hey, Brittany. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you very much for joining Thank us. And... and uh, First off, I was stumbling a little bit to try to remember where all of your locations are. I know you're in in Montpelier, in Burlington. Anywhere else? You're at the airport, Absolutely. I know. Yeah, thanks so much. Skinny Pancake can be found at Burlington's waterfront. We just opened up in Stowe this summer, right on 454 Mountain Road. We're still mm-hmm. open in Cleachie, Vermont. We have the Montpelier location and the airport. We're also open at the University of Vermont. And we will be reopening at our Stowe location up at the mountain at Spruce Peak. I see. Okay, so uh, you are you're getting around a little bit, and uh, I am not surprised that uh, that. Uh, and, and I mean, it sounds like your your business then, if you're growing like that, if you're opening new places and so on, you must be uh, doing okay in this pandemic. Is that a good uh, way to imagine what you're doing? I would say we're having the same struggles as any other restaurant. Shift Meals, which we'll get into in a minute, has really been able to boost our revenue, but also allow us to employ more than double the number of employees we would have normally. Um, wow. Opening new locations during the pandemic was kind of, uh, we were already doing it before community shutdown started, so we couldn't really put that uh, back in the box, so to speak. Yeah, right, right. I see. Um, and and in, ter- in terms of the uh, everybody eats program that Sue was describing, um, how how do you folks kind of participate that on a day to day basis first? So, from a day to day basis, I mean it's changed greatly over the course of the pandemic for us at Skinny Pancake. When our community shut down, we just immediately got to work to save any food that was in our coolers and try to get as many prepared meals and raw produce back to our employees as we were facing the unknown. And we had no idea if we would be able to get folks employment again and what kind of food access would be coming down the line. Um, from March till now, 
We have completely reinvented our systems and our facility in Winooski is a 7,000 square foot facility to do pretty much 75% of what we do there is just making meals for the community. Um, Shift Meals was an independent program that we had support from a number of um, nonprofits such as Vermont Community Foundation, High Meadows Fund, the Interrail Center, um, and it was through our work with the Vermont Food Bank that we were able to create systems making thousands upon thousands of meals a week. In late May was our biggest week we've ever had. We made 6,500 uh, 6, meals in one week. And now that we're on board with the Everyone Eats program, it's been an amazing opportunity to share with other restaurants how our systems work and how they can, too, make 300 to 1,000 meals a week to serve their community as well. Wow. <clears throat> now, um, and this is all in addition to your sort of normal uh, workload of uh, serving customers who, uh, you know, come into the restaurants in the traditional manner, either for sit-down. I mean, are you doing sit-down and, and to what extent and uh, and then takeout, I gather, right? Absolutely. So like most restaurants, we had to really ramp up our takeout game. We got right on board with online ordering. We were able to reinvigorate some of our packaging to make sure our crepes would travel well and still get to the table at home, steaming hot. We have been open outdoor dining for since about May. So for the first two months of shift meals, we were completely closed down at all of our locations, and we put our full force effort into this program, into launching this program. But now we are open indoors. We have taken on that hurdle as early as October 1st um, at our Lake Street location, our Stowe Mountain Road location, Queechee and Montpelier. And, of course, at University of Vermont, um, we've been navigating that since, since day one with opening up there. So I have to say that our team has been incredible to be able to look in the direction of our normal service, which is nothing like normal service during COVID, um, mm-hmm. not just increased sanitation, but much limited capacity of labor. You know, you can't have as many folks inside the building making the food, just as you can't have as many diners in at any given time. And at the same time, we've been able to execute thousands of meals a week. Um, more than 60,000 have gone out from the skinny pancake alone since we started this program in April. Wow, uh, you know, I, I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm just hearing your voice and the way you kind of talk about this and the apparent approach that, you, that folks at Skinny Pancake have taken. Um, I get my hats off to you because I, it sounds to me like you, uh, you know, here comes a giant tidal wave or something of this unknown thing we were calling the pan, we are calling the pandemic. And, uh, and you just say, we're going to figure out a way to roll with this and, um, and, and do the best we can to contribute, uh, continue to be a provider of food to our community, even if it's in completely new ways. And, and that's pretty amazing. It sounds like that, uh, Brittany is really, uh, you know, that whole group on top of their game over there at Skinny Pancake. And, uh, how, uh, talk to me a little more about how other restaurants have been brought into this. Yeah, and I would say, you know, I think it is amazing, as you pointed out, to hear how Skinny Pancake created shift meals to really address uh, this need. And, 
You know, I, I'm in such a situation of, of both experiencing and hearing horrific and, and heart-wrenching stories about the growing needs in Vermont uh, related to the COVID pandemic, and then these inspiring stories about um, partners and restaurants and businesses all really rising to meet the challenge in new ways. And uh, it is, um, it, it's what gives me hope, Dave, uh, through these hard times. And I did want to really talk a little bit about what's happening in terms of food insecurity and hunger in Vermont, because, you know, before the pandemic, we knew that one in 10 people experiencing, uh, were experiencing hunger and food insecurity in Vermont, one in 10. Um, And that term, food insecurity, um, is kind of a spectrum of need. It can mean everything from true hunger every day, not getting enough food, Uh, or not getting nutritious food because you rely on inexpensive uh, calories but not nutritious calories to meet your need. Or it can range to people who literally are are constantly having daily worries about their ability to uh, have enough food, pay for um, their fuel, their gas, uh, their child care and their health care bills. So when we talk about that term, food insecurity, it means all of those things. But what began before March as one in 10 in Vermont, we now know is one in four. One in four Vermonters are now uh, having food insecurity. And within that, uh, we know that certain communities are suffering more. People of color are four times as likely to be food insecure as those uh, folks who are white. And um, women with children are twice as likely to be food uh, insecure. So we have um, really got an increasing challenge to meet, and that's why uh, it's it's all kinds of programs. I um, have been a part of a a statewide um, mass feeding task force with the state of Vermont. It it includes our emergency operations center, our agency of human services, our agency of education, um, the food bank, um, the community action agencies that I represent, and and hunger-free Vermont. And we have been meeting weekly since the beginning of this pandemic to really uh, rise to this challenge. You know that there is a federally uh, supported program called the Food farmers to food farmers to families food boxes. Those are the mass distribution efforts that the food bank has coordinated. Uh, help from the National Guard. Uh, we saw in Barry uh, at the at the airport this summer people waiting in line for four hours in the hot sun. Those distributions have continued. Um, except for uh, a disruption of the service for about six weeks in the middle of September. Uh, Now they are back on track, but only through the end of this month. And those are meeting an extraordinary need. Just to give you context, um, the food bank has given out over 14 million pounds of food just since March. Um, wow. You know, 80,000 boxes of meals have been given to Vermonters through these sort of food distribution efforts. And, and just to give that in context, when you think about 14 million, generally the USDA considers 1.2 pounds to be a meal. 
Now, those have been given out to people who may have never been in this situation before, and that's why we know this this demand is so important to meet. And we've been doing that, and the WE is a large group of volunteers, the food bank, uh, the National Guard, uh, businesses, including Vermont businesses who were um, successful at getting uh, the federal contracts uh, to do this. And it's been incredible, but um, worrisome, Dave, is that this is going to end at the end of this month. And yes, this wonderful program, Vermont Everyone Eats, is is stepping up. And I want to mention that we here in central Vermont are having um, several uh, community pop-up distributions, um, especially as we get towards the holiday uh, in in Barrie, in Washington County, and in uh, Orange County and Lamoille County. We are having distribution sites. Um, in Barrie uh, at the Capstone off uh, food shelf. Uh, it's going to be on the October the 28th and November 18th. Uh, in Lamoille in Johnson at the Lamoille County Field Days, there will be pop-up distributions on the 30th of October and the 13th of November. And then out in Rochester, uh, at the Rochester Elementary School, we will have these community distribution of these restaurant-prepared meals through Everyone Eats. Uh, that'll be on the 28th of October and the 18th of November. So um, we are doing weekly distribution through the network of partners. I mentioned the community health centers. Uh, we're also Head Start Families, our Working Bridges program, our food shelves, lots of community distribution uh, as well as these pop up for everyone who can uh, needs the meal. Alrighty, let's talk more after the bottom of the hour break for some CBS News and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our conversation with Sue Minter of Capstone and with Brittany Sperber of the uh, Skinny Pancake Restaurants uh, in just a couple minutes, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rock and Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. Thanks for staying with us in the second half hour of our program on this Thursday morning, October the 22nd. And uh, we're going to continue our conversation with uh, Sue Minter, who is executive director of the Capstone Community Action Agency. They're based in Barrie. They cover uh, Washington, Orange, and Lamoille counties with a wide variety of human services programs and uh, efforts to uh, help folks in the community who are in need of help. And uh, we also have with us uh, Brittany Sperber. She is with the uh, Skinny pancake family of restaurants here in vermont and uh, we've been talking about the uh, about programs that are designed to uh, help our restaurants by getting them to participate in programs to get food to people who need it especially in this uh, weird and uh, troubling period of the coronavirus crisis uh, our restaurant industry has really taken it on the chin and uh, a lot of folks out there are in need 
capstone community action steps up and says, hmm, problem here, problem there, let's help solve, let's help both of these uh, entities uh, solve each other's problems, maybe, to some extent anyway. So that's what we are uh, we are talking about uh, this morning. And uh, Sue Minter, uh, those are amazing and troubling numbers when you talk to us about how, you know, as of a year ago, one in ten Vermonters uh, were uh, food insecure. Now it's one in four Vermonters. Um, and I'm wondering, is there uh, any hope of um, kind of moving that needle? I mean, are there... Are, are there uh, expectations that, uh, you know, we'll go back to one in six Vermonters or one in eight Vermonters over time in the coming months, or uh, how does it look? Well, we want to absolutely not just get back to where we were, but to improve this overall. And, you know, I do want to say, as incredible as these programs are, uh, these distributions programs and important serve as a stopgap, uh, I want to emphasize that there are ongoing, these are temporary, these are temporary, and unfortunately, unless Congress passes another stimulus bill, and I want to put a pitch in for that, we really need these programs to continue and to actually help <clears throat> in so many ways the Vermonters uh, that are, this is just one piece of the challenges. But I do want to mention that there are um, more permanent programs that really are uh, far more dignified than asking people to come to food shelves or food distributions, and that's our Three Squares Vermont program. People can actually, get, who are eligible, can get money into their uh, bank accounts each month to make sure they can go shopping at local um, groceries and have our uh, strength of their own wallet and our own local economy. Our school, school meals program, which, I, you know, the, what's happening in our schools and how they have stepped up is an extraordinary story in and of itself. But um, there's also WIC, the Women, Infants, and Children, and the Meals on Wheels. These are permanent federal programs, you know, paid for by tax dollars that we know, unfortunately, there's a stigma for many Vermonters, especially those who are experiencing these challenges for the first time. And I really want to uh, tell Vermonters that, you know, help is here for you. And if you need um, that security now, please um, reach out. Uh, we have a special um, website, vermontfoodhelp.org that can help you through the process of applying for this dignified way of getting, making sure your, meet, your needs are met. Or if you're looking for uh, a food distribution site through the food bank, you can go to vtfoodbank.org, and you can always call Capstone uh, you know, for any information or help with uh, food, heat, housing, uh, or any other needs. Our, our toll-free number is one 800 639-1053 or online at capstonevt.org. You know, these are incredible stories, incredible times, and it is so heartening to hear the many ways, the many businesses, the many social service organizations and volunteers stepping up throughout this uh, incredible time. You know, we are so Vermont strong, and we're not going to give up, um, but we're not just going to go back to where we were. We're going to use this as actually an opportunity to transform to a place where we don't have people one paycheck away from poverty uh, coming to food shelves to meet their basic needs. Uh, we really want to build a, a more just and equitable society into the future. I believe we have a listener who's calling in, uh, Dan uh, from Essex. Good morning, Dan. 
Great. Um, that, that answer we just heard just tied right into my question. I was wondering, what do we do with all this data that we're gathering, you know, on these, you know, uh, these less fortunate people, and how is that communicated across the various state agencies so they could potentially find more gainful employment and child care and stuff like that so they can get back to work? And we know that that comes with this theme. So how does this all tie together as a, communi- uh, as a community of services across the state? Sue, why don't you take a stab at that one? That's a really good uh, I, mean, I have to say, I, I know there was a caller on the line I couldn't make out. I heard uh, about housing okay. programs. Can you re- reflect the question to me? Yeah, basically, I, I, and Dan, I'm going to summarize a little bit, uh, but I think um, – I, I think the question goes to how, how do you coordinate uh, the many services that are available? You were just, uh, you know, mentioning a, a, a list of uh, different places people can go for help, and uh, you, you want to make sure that the help is kind of used with maximum uh, efficiency in terms of actually getting to the largest number of people. And, and uh, uh, how do you make sure that, that all of these different efforts are, are coordinated? Is that is that a fair uh, a fair uh, description of the question, Dan? Yes, because I yes it is, and because I, I think there's this sense of pride and fulfillment that people have from work, and I don't think these people. All right, let me know, stop you for a second. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to get Sue to answer the question before we yep. lose track of it again. So, so Sue, uh, talk to us about about coordinating these different types of help a little bit. Such a great question, and we work on coordination um, in all of our service areas, as does uh, the other community action agencies. You know, poverty uh, and the challenges that Vermonters face are very complex, and there's not one solution. Um, we work on housing and helping prevent homelessness. Uh, but Capstone doesn't just work uh, to help individuals. We work with landlords, and we work with other housing organizations, our, our shelter uh, and the downstreet housing, which builds affordable housing and manages it. So we are a connecting point. Um, for example, with food, uh, we work very closely with the food bank and with the hunger councils. Um, we also get federal and state dollars to help uh, provide crisis assistance uh, for heat. Um, all of these are um, kind of different kinds of uh, Band-Aids on a very patchwork quilt. I think in other places it might be considered a government responsibility, but here it's a community responsibility. And we get support mm-hmm. from local businesses and individual philanthropists. And um, But we at Capstone are very conscious about how do we work effectively with our partner organizations. And it is uh, unique that the community action agencies think about poverty and the complex uh, challenges that Vermonters fee, uh, have. And that's very important to have that holistic view, uh, but there are partners who are exclusively dedicated to housing, and then we connect the dots between the folks who come to us in crisis and those providing that specific service. I hope that helps to answer the question. Oh, yeah. And what do you think, Dan? Just one add-on, if I could. So sure. it, it sounds like you're on the front lines and you're seeing everyone almost every day. What do we do how do you spot people that might need some mental health assistance and their poor children, right? Um, how do we – is there a, a mechanism for that, too? And I'll hang up. Thank you. Okay, thanks and, for the call, thank Dan. You. Uh, thank did, you for so, that, that Did you hear that question? Mental health. 
Yeah, yeah. I heard him really well that time, and I really okay. appreciate the question. Um, okay. And I want to just say step one, 211 is the number to call if you see anyone who needs help. That is exactly what that service is all about, connecting individuals to the, the, the local needs, uh, opportunities available. So uh, while the community action agencies have people calling them who need specific services, anyone can get access to help through 211. It's, uh, you know, it's the 911 of social service needs. So that is your Vermont quickest answer to that. But I do want to recognize, um, you know, the, a lot of the folks we serve are elderly people on fixed incomes, and you know the isolation um, that the folks on our front lines communicating by phone, who usually have some kind of interpersonal communication, we're we're really limiting that in COVID. We're on the phone, but you know it's very different, and so the additional stress of COVID and isolation and the stress on mental health is extraordinary for everyone regardless of your income level. And um, I really want to thank the listener for, for raising that. And many mental health services service providers are part of the network of support that we are connected with and providing that help for folks who are reaching out or who are quietly suffering. Uh, Brittany Sperber of uh, Skinny Pancake, if you're still on the line, I want to bring you back into the conversation um, and ask you, you know, Sue was talking about this this whole idea of members of the community uh, kind of stepping up and reaching out and just helping others in need and so on. Um, that must not, it, it must not, I mean, I, you know, I, I remember years ago I worked in restaurants as a you know young guy <clears throat> in high school and college or whatever, but I, and it, it probably wasn't top of mind for most of the people in the kitchen, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it, it, now in this situation here, uh, you folks are, are really stepping up, and I'm wondering, what is, the, what is the spirit of that? How do people in the kitchens of your restaurants uh, feel about what they're doing? Right. Thanks for asking that question, Dave. And I just want to mention that without the um, amazing expertise of Capstone Community Action, we would not have been able to launch as intensely and impactfully as we have in central Vermont. Um, they really have done an amazing job to connect those dots between the different um, services and allowed us to launch quickly and, yeah, with, with some real impact, almost 4,000 meals a week at this point we're, we're sending out through central Vermont. And other areas in Vermont do not have that service that connects those dots. I'm similarly working in Chittenden County, and um, we are working through each service as an individual unit. So I just really needed to take a moment to pass off the capstone and, and make sure to recognize that they've been an incredible partner. And so the partnership is one part of uh, what's created that spirit at Skinny Pancake. When we started Shift Meals, so many people in the community were immediately jumping on board saying, we want to help you help us get these meals out into the community. And so folks at the Community Foundation, the High Meadows Fund, the Interrail Center, um, distributors from across the state, Farrell, Cisco, Black River, a number of different farms were donating products like eggs and cheese and um, tons of cheese from Vermont Creamery. And just the amazing spirit that came together, it was infectious to everyone at Skinny Pancake. We have always had a mission at Skinny from the very beginning to create 
everyday enjoyment, using local products, engaging with our community. We've always been a center for community art and music. And so it was a natural progression for us to, as we always have, sort of bounce off the energy from the community and have that go both ways. I do think that we have a abnormally positive environment in our kitchens at Skinny Pancake. I've worked in many kitchens as well, um, and they have not always had the vibe. We are so excited when local produce from Palmy Call Farm comes in the door. We help each other out on the line and take breaks. There's no screaming or throwing <laughs> <like laughs> or any of that, that hothead environment that you find. Uh, we think that our employees are really drawn to our program and our project and our business because we have a mission to continue to give back to the local economy, to continue to push the envelope on meals being made, you know, more than 60% local, but at an affordable price. And so wow. it was not just the natural mission and the, the natural feelings of the Sweet Pancake as we've always been, but it was this community sort of all coming to the door, all coming to the table at the same time to really keep our, our staff inspired and keep going. Abnormally positive. I like that I like that phrase. <laughs> Brittany, I wanted to I wanted to check with you because you you have uh, made a point a couple times now of mentioning the uh, use of uh locally uh, sourced food here uh, at your restaurants, so, uh, food uh, right here from Vermont and uh um Sue, was, Sue said something on the break about how we are, uh, you know, the, the Everybody Eats program is really trying to emphasize that as a way to uh, help Vermont farmers uh, keep up their markets and so on during this pandemic. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So one of the three goals of the Everyone Eats program, of course, first is to get meals to hungry Vermonters. The second is to provide a stimulus for restaurants and businesses. And the third is that all meals pre- uh, prepared through the Everyone Eats program have a goal to use at least 10% of Vermont farm and food products. So part of our weekly invoicing process with the 12 restaurants we have here in central Vermont is they report back their total purchasing in dollars and then their total purchasing that went to a Vermont farm product, produce, meat, cheese, and even value-added products. And so I'm really proud to say that more than 32% of the food that has gone out through the Everyone Eats program in central Vermont, 32% was from Vermont farm and food producers up to this point. Um, wow. So I'm not surprised that we're beating the 10% uh, mm-hmm. you know, fast and, and forward right off the gate. The goal, of course, is 10% across the statewide program. And so I'm happy to say uh, that we're able to bring that number up for everyone. <laughs> wow, that, that that's pretty impressive when you set yourself a goal of 10% and you come in at 32% uh, of all the food you're sourcing coming from uh, Vermont producers. Um, that's uh, Sue, did you know it was that high? Yeah, I'd heard that. And, uh, again, it's a really a tribute to how incredible this program is. And I just want to thank, you know, the Vermont legislature kicked off this challenge and set that goal of 10% local produce, uh, regional hubs. And all across the state, we're just talking about central Vermont, there's 18 different hubs doing unique, different things, you know, in their communities 
all over Vermont and a hundred different restaurants. And I don't know the number of farms, but to know that we in central Vermont are sourcing over 30% locally, it's an incredible stimulus, you know, feeding our families and helping our local economies. And, you know, just our restaurants are really struggling. And when you think about that restaurant, and the, it's really the heart of our community. I know in Waterbury, our downtown restaurants, they are the gathering place. They are the place where we uh, find uh, our friends, our neighbors, and incredible food. And so I'm just so proud to be able to support uh, our local communities, our farms, our neighbors, and especially those neighbors in need. And uh, we're thrilled to have the opportunity to work with Shift Meals, uh, Skinny Pancake, and all of the the partners. You know, we've got 38 different partners right here in central Vermont getting food to those who need it. So it's just been a tremendous tremendous experience so far and we will be doing this through the end through the middle of december Uh, again these are federal cares act dollars that came to vermont and the legislature uh directed this the agency of commerce the you know the governor's administration has really been behind it and of course stepping forward these incredible restaurants and community hubs uh Brittany, there's one more thing we might want to talk about which is a digital um voucher program uh, which is being kicked off essentially today. Uh, and that enables any Vermonter who is struggling to online access local food and to be able to, to use this voucher uh, to do it. And so how, do they find, how do they to, find that? We just have about a minute or so to go. So uh, quickly tell us, how does, how does somebody find that? VTEveryoneEats.org is probably the best way. Brittany? Yeah, that is the best way to find the link for the voucher program, um, vteveryoneeats.org. Additionally, we have placed a number of the locations for Chittenden County and Central Vermont on our Skip Meals page. It's called skipmeals.org, and you'll click the Everyone Eats tab. All right. Well, uh, Brittany Sperber of uh, the Skinny pancake uh, restaurants and uh, sue minter of the capstone community action thank the two of you very much for joining me this morning this is really uh, an incredible effort that you're all putting together and i'm glad to hear you uh, i'm glad to get you to talk about it on our program thanks so much let's go to thank a top of rick for some cbs news here on the dave graham show on wdev stay with us folks Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV-FM and AM. Hey, thanks for staying with us into our second hour on this Thursday morning, October the 22nd. And uh, we'd like to uh, visit with one of our uh, national correspondents for a few minutes after the top of the hour news break. And uh, this morning, I believe we have Paul Vialis, uh, law enforcement analyst with uh, CBS News, on the uh, phone with us. Good morning, Paul. Thank you very much for joining me. Good morning, Dave. Uh, we had a, a kind of a surprise appearance last night in a brief press briefing by the uh, Director of National Intelligence, uh, 
Mr. Ratcliffe and uh, by the uh, head of the FBI uh, talking about uh, some strange conduct on the part of, uh, I believe, Iran and Russia connected with uh, our election. And uh, tell us what happened there and uh, what the, what's been breaking overnight in terms of what people are thinking about this. Sure, Dave. This is part of an ongoing investigation that uh, our, our intelligence community in the United States has been focusing on since earlier this year. So this is nothing new. Uh, we use combinations, so that your listeners know, we, we use a combination of cyber intelligence and human intelligence. Human intelligence meaning human assets or individuals in our intelligence community that are strategically placed in countries all over the world. So we use that hybrid approach because it allows us not only to go on our information but to validate its sources. So we've, just because um, they decreased the information yesterday, we've been watching it for a while as a community. So as far as Russia goes, as far as Iran goes, it's very standard for them to try to implement misdirection uh, practices before an election. Nothing new there. Uh, what they are using now more than ever before is the use of social media. So they're monitoring what's going on with respect to our news. So let's just say, you know, the debate or some, some type of event like that. And then they follow that evening and the following day or two to see how the United States is responding to it, how voters, potential voters, our citizens, uh, how they're reacting to it, who are the influential people in the United States that people are following. And they use that information as their trajectory of information of misinformation to, to the American public, basically to either stop people from voting or, B, to direct them in the area that they want them to go to. Hmm. Um, and and is there uh, concern that uh, this is just sort of like the first volley and that we're going to be basically seeing this kind of stuff right up through the election? Absolutely, Pete. I'm sorry, Dave. Absolutely. And, and, and the reason why we're going to do that is they waited intentionally for two weeks before the election. And why? Because that's when the American public is the most stressed. That's when they start. The American public, the potential voter, is really grappling with who they're going to vote for. And there's a lot of undecided people right now. So they're waiting. They waited for this period. We can expect a lot of this over the next two weeks uh, on a daily basis through news channels, the Internet, and social media. And the, uh, um, the these warnings that people have been getting, vote for Trump or else uh, we're, we're going to come after you with Proud Boys or whatever, uh, these have been popping up, I guess, on people's social media feeds, mainly in, in Florida, from what I understand, but uh, not exclusively Florida. Uh, I'm wondering, um, is is there any reason that anybody would have any reason to fear? Uh, in other words, you know, I can imagine a person seeing this and saying, oh, my word, what am, what am I, what am I, what are we getting into here? Uh, do I really need to vote for President Trump in order to avoid some kind of harm coming to me or anything? Uh, there's really nothing to worry about for the individuals who get these messages, is there? No, there's nothing to worry about. Remember, the only thing that that we should be afraid of is our our indecisiveness. Now, the the reason that you... One of the best things, and I say this after 40 years of government service, I can tell you, um, one of the reasons why uh, they will use the American public at this point with those types of statements is because they, they want you to go in the direction they're pushing you. So if they send a message out that says, we represent the, 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 the good old boys, and, you know, we're, if you don't vote for Trump, we're coming after you. If, mm-hmm. The reason they're doing that is because they're trying to direct you away from President Trump. Now, if they sent the message out, 
similarly to Vice President Biden, and they really are trying to direct it in the other direction. So take what you see like that and realize that whoever the sender is, the ever bad actor on the other side of that, they're just trying to misdirect you to the area they want you to go to. So it's all, I mean, the bottom line here is it's all garbage, basically, and you, 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 you're better off ignoring it. Hey, I wanted to, uh, uh, go to, if, if it's okay, Paul, tell me if, uh, I'm out of bounds here, but, uh, uh, briefly on another story connected somewhat with law enforcement, uh, this New York Post story of a week ago or so about, uh, Hunter Biden and, and, uh, the counter narrative that, uh, this might be Russian intelligence, uh, uh, but working with uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, President Trump's lawyer, to push this story about Hunter Biden allegedly uh, trying to bring nefarious influence around, uh, with his dad in behalf of a uh, of a Ukrainian energy executive. Um, where where is all this coming down to now? What have, what have, what have we learned over the course of the weekend? Uh, is this is this Russian intelligence talking, or is there some real stuff here? It appears that it's real stuff. Um, you know, the, this passionate side of the of the bureau of the FBI in their investigation and uncovering hard data that points to in the emails that, of course, this is part of a forensic investigation now to verify if it did in fact come from Hunter Biden, but if it did come from him, and that information is correct, then it, this is this is not just damaging, but it's criminal. So uh, it's a very serious investigation, and I would expect. But sometime in the next week or so, there should be some type of briefing that, that, that the public will be provided relative to the validity and reliability of those, of those messages. And um, is it, do you think it's anything that, that could or should change the outcome of the election? Or, I mean, I, I also wonder whether the, real, the, the, the culpable person here uh, might be Hunter Biden as opposed to, uh, as opposed to his father. Well, see, here's, therein lies, that's a great question, Dave. I mean, culpable clearly as far as Hunter Biden, but it's what, it's what the vice president knew and what they can prove because you're going to a credibility issue at this point. You know, when you have the, the person that's going to be elected as the, the, the head of the free world, um, that, that has lied relative to something that's as damaging as this and potentially criminal as this, then that clearly Will, will impact uh, what people are going to do on election day. There's no question about that. And if this information hypothetically came out after the election, Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, um, that doesn't grant him immunity about having to face um, whatever would be relative to what he did or did not do in this case. So uh, this, this is a very, very serious um, investigation. And the fact that there is hard data that's out there that's being verified right now. If that is verified, this this is a game changer, Dave. There's no question about that. Is there a uh, uh, anything to the Washington Post and New York Times reporting that um, you know Rudy Giuliani, who has been a key player in providing this information to the New York Post, for instance, and has been kind of pushing this whole issue? Um, uh, you know, they're 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 linking him pretty strongly with uh, and 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 quoting uh, anonymous U.S. intelligence officials linking Mr. Giuliani pretty strongly with uh, with Russian intelligence. What about all that? Yeah, I, you know what? Those are again. I mean, you're talking about espionage at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Whether you, whether you like Rudy Giuliani or not, right? General public, whether you like him or not, 
the man is a brilliant lawyer. I mean, he's, he understands the law very, very well. I mean, he, this is one of the guys that he goes back to the origins of the genesis of RICO. So if this is true, and, and he has been collaborating with the Russians, I mean, it's just out of character for him. Uh, again, you may like him or dislike him, but the man is a lawyer. He's a very learned individual. So he knows the ramifications of these actions. This isn't a slap on the wrist. So I, that's why I would tend to doubt it. That's why I tend to disbelieve that, that accusation, just to the sheer fact that the man knows you're talking about, you know, espionage. And, and I don't see Rudy Giuliani going down that road. All right. Well, Paul Vialis of uh, CBS News, uh, thank you very much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. And I'm glad to say that in the next uh, segment of the show, we're going to be talking about the Peace Corps, uh, that that the venerable program started way back by, by the uh, President John F. Kennedy in the early 1960s, uh, still going strong. And uh, Vermont has had quite an outsized role for its tiny sti- size and population as a state uh, in the Peace Corps um, and the University of Vermont as, as well. And I've got... Uh, Three folks who are coming on today uh, to talk to us about this uh, as part of our weekly uh, Seeds to Society segment when we've been working with the uh, University of Vermont uh, College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, uh, uh, which has been very kindly providing us uh, lots of great topics and uh, folks to talk to about them from week to week here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV, FM, and AM. And uh, this week uh, they uh, reached out to uh, UVM uh, folks who are involved in the uh, in the Peace Corps recruitment effort and, and in the Peace Corps itself. And uh, we are glad to say that we have with us uh, uh, Jane Kolodinsky, who's a professor and chair of the uh, Department of Community Development and Applied Economics. Uh, uh, Jane, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And let's see, we also have uh, Travis Reynolds. Uh, he is a... Uh, uh, an assistant professor in the, in the UVM Department of Community Development and Applied Economics, and uh, he works with the Peace Corps Prep Program at UVM. I get it; that's to prepare students, as it sounds, to uh, to head off onto their Peace Corps uh, assignments. Is that correct, Travis? Uh, yes. So the Peace Corps Prep Program was uh, established by the Peace Corps. Um, at the federal level to um, provide a way for universities to develop kind of a structured undergraduate experience for students at the undergrad level who might go into the Peace Corps later on. So it's a it's a way for uh, students to use their undergraduate time uh, kind of in a deliberate, intentional way uh, to develop a stronger Peace Corps uh, skill set and application portfolio. I see. Wow. Uh, Mary Blecky. As uh, I believe is a, grad, a graduate student at uh, UVM uh, and University of Vermont Peace Corps recruiter uh, and a returned Peace Corps volunteer, we'll find out all, all, out all about uh, your uh, your work there, uh, Mary, as well. And Mary, uh, by the way, uh, Travis, thank you for joining us this morning. And Mary, I, I extend the same thanks to you. Uh, pronounce your last name for me, Mary. I'm not sure I've got it right. Hi, good morning, Dave. Yeah, you said it right. It's Balecki. Happy to be here. Glad to, glad to have you. And uh, Mary, actually, let me start with you, if I could. Uh, uh, do I have this right that you are a returned Peace Corps volunteer? And tell us from uh, where were you in the Peace Corps? Yes, that is correct. I am a returned evacuated volunteer, so I served in Jamaica 
in the agriculture sector for about a year before being evacuated due to the coronavirus back in March when Peace Corps evacuated all 7,000 volunteers globally. Wow, that that must have been uh, quite disappointing and, and uh, traumatic for you. Is, is that a fair description? Um, you know, it was pretty traumatic, but I think it's a great testament to Peace Corps' ability to mobilize and um, protect volunteers and communities abroad. And, uh, and and that is obviously something that you want to uh, have in mind, uh, you know, in case uh, in case things get difficult uh, while you're out on a, on an assignment in, in far flung places around the world. Uh, that the Peace Corps has that ability to uh, to bring you back home if need be, and and obviously that's not the ideal, but occasionally I gather over the years it has had to had to happen. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it's actually the first time that all volunteers have been evacuated at once. At the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, and the first time I've heard about this, it, that just you know once again this is another. Another giant uh, blow, especially delivered by this pandemic, that uh, that uh, you know the world is uh, has gotten weird for so many people. Um, is there now? Normally, the Peace Corps assignment is a year. Is that right, Mary? It's actually a 27-month commitment. So the okay. first three months are training, and then the following 24 months, you're sworn in as a volunteer. You um, are assigned to the community that will welcome you, and then you spend those um, two years at that com- with that community. I see. Okay, and um, so you're uh, you were how uh, how far into the program, or how many months did you have left of those? I gather twenty four of the actual uh, foreign assignment. Yeah, I had a, a full year left. So I think the. It was traumatic for me, yes, to leave, but I think it's also very traumatic for the communities that Peace Corps was involved with to have those um, volunteers and support systems um, leaving, but they are hopeful in having returned um, volunteers back to the field, hopefully by next summer, so mid-2021, but um, nothing is certain yet just because of the COVID crisis. Yeah. Um, now, this here's another uh, wrinkle to this thing, which is that uh, obviously, uh, you know, a year ago, if I had talked to you, you would have uh, maybe told me about a sort of life plan you had, at least for the next few years or whatever. And you are uh, maybe thinking about, uh, uh, you know, finishing the Peace Corps assignment, I gather, in, in uh, would have been in uh, March of uh, of uh, or so of uh, 2021. Because that would be a year out from from your uh, evacuation, um, and then uh, after that, you you know who knows people do different things. You could have uh, and, and been enrolling in another graduate program somewhere, or you know continued your studies at the University of Vermont, or who knows? I mean, gone off and gotten married or something. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, people uh, do all sorts of things, um, and I'm just wondering. Uh, uh, are, are, are you planning on going back now when the when the coronavirus uh, uh, crisis finally uh, recedes? Uh, would would do you think you would be back in the uh, in the field with the, with the Peace Corps again? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, personally, 
I've made the commitment to be a graduate student working towards my master's in public admin, so I'm committed to my education right now, but I hope to return to Jamaica on a regular basis for the rest of my life to um, connect with the friends and my Jamaican family. And and what were you actually doing in Jamaica? What kind of services were you working in in the community there? Yeah, so I was partnered with a coffee farmers group. I was in the Blue Mountains of Jamaica with the production of, you know, the infamous Blue Mountain coffee. So I was supporting farmers in value-added processing of coffee instead of selling the raw coffee cherry for a super low price. And then I also had the opportunity to engage in um, secondary projects, working um, with the vegetable farmers group. Um, I helped teach a adult computer class and also got community involved through um, football tournaments. <laughs> wow, that's quite a range of, uh, uh, we're talking about agriculture and then we're talking about computer classes and then we're talking about sports, uh, football. And I'm just, um, and by, by football and gathering down there, you mean so, uh, what we think of as soccer up here, is that right? Yeah, so they call yeah. it football, but yeah, we yeah, call it yeah. soccer. <laughs> right, right, okay. Um, and uh, fascinating. I mean, that's that's uh, quite a range of activities there. And I, want, I may want to get back to you in a few minutes to talk about what you did to prepare for, for kind of uh, some level of expertise in all those things before you went down there. But I also want to bring uh, our other guests into the conversation a little bit here. And, and uh, let me go to Travis for a moment and ask you, Travis, you, you are – an assistant, an assistant professor at UVM, and also a returned uh, Peace Corps volunteer. Did you just come back in the in evacuate un, un, under the pandemic, or was your peace service some time ago? Oh no, my my service was now some some time ago uh, in the early 2000s, so right after mm-hmm. undergraduate. Um, and I served in uh, Senegal, so in uh, West Africa, and I was mm-hmm. an agroforestry volunteer, so working. With small-scale farmers to incorporate trees into their cropping practices. Wow, that's that, that's interesting. Uh, what sorts of trees were they uh, were they incorporating into their cropping practices? Yeah, so, so uh, uh, the the, uh, the the way the Peace Corps uh, used to work was you would, uh, as an applicant, apply to the Peace Corps and then put together this portfolio that the countries that would be hosting you would evaluate and and sort of choose from to to draw in people that had the skill sets that they wanted and i mm-hmm. used to think that it was a uh, it was wonderful to imagine the room where someone looked at my transcript and said oh this is a french major with a maple syrup farm in the northeast kingdom of vermont this person is ideally suited to graft mangoes in the Sahel and to teach courses in uh, in, in lemon and uh, papaya uh, propagation. Uh, but it was perfect. It was it was great. Um, it, it's um, it's the kind of work where in a very short period of time you can plant a whole lot of seedlings, but you're also working with people to plant trees that are going to be there for decades. And uh, um, so, yeah, mostly, to answer your question, mostly uh, citrus 
mangoes, uh, papaya were the, the fruit trees of interest. And then a lot of agroforestry um, species like uh, indigenous trees with thorns that you can use as live fences or hmm. uh, indigenous trees with uh, nitrogen fixing properties or with good fodder properties that you can use as multi-purpose trees that help the soil and feed your livestock in the off season. Well, you know, I always like maple syrup on my papaya, so I can see why you had the right, the right skill set to. Uh, <laughs> only actually, done, only kidding. Papaya, I think, are they're pretty sweet with the, even without any of that uh, great uh, great Vermont uh, topping. Um, uh, Jane Kolaniski, uh, I gather you are are sort of overseeing uh, all of these folks who are traveling off occasionally to uh, far flung places and. Uh, what, tell me about your your role briefly in the uh, in in the overall uh, Peace Corps UVM scene. Right. So um, I don't oversee the Peace Corps volunteers who are who are applying to the the Peace Corps. Those come from all over the university, and in fact, all over Vermont. What I do is I oversee the the um, the three different Peace Corps programs that sit in. Cows and specifically in the Department of Community Development and Applied Economics. So hmm. the Peace Corps recruiter, who is Mary, uh, that's actually a graduate student position along with contract from the Peace Corps to, to have that position. So Mary will come out with a Master of Public Administration, and the job part of her assistantship is to be the recruiter. Um, we also have the Peace Corps prep program, which you did mention, which in five short years um, were a top 10 Peace Corps prep producing program. And so it's, it's the certificate sits in our department. And then we also have the Coverdell Fellows Program, which is a graduate program for returning Peace Corps volunteers. Um, and those I'm going I'm, I'm I'm to stop you there, for, uh, oh. Jane, because uh, I've got to go to the bottom of the hour CBS News break. But w- let's continue the conversation on the other side. I'm fascinated, and we'll be back in a couple minutes, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. We are back and uh, got three guests on the line this morning talking about the uh, Peace Corps and the role of Vermonters and particularly people who affiliated with the University of Vermont uh, with that or- that uh, federally backed organization that sends people all over the world to uh, help provide uh, assistance and and uh, training and guide other forms of guidance to. Uh, to uh, folks uh, in uh, developing countries, and um, we have uh, Mary Balecki, who's a UVM graduate student and uh, is a uh, Peace Corps returnee. Uh, didn't mean to be back so soon, but uh, got pulled out of Jamaica back last March at the start of the uh, coronavirus uh, crisis, and unfortunately, it looks like uh, all 7,000 Peace Corps volunteers around the world were brought home uh, after the uh, after the pandemic uh, sort of settled in, uh, settled down, or whatever it did descended on, maybe that's the best way to describe it. Uh, the world, and uh, we also have with us uh, Travis Reynolds, who's an assistant professor in the UVM Department of Community Development and Applied Economics, and 
He's a Peace Corps prep program coordinator, meaning uh, that's uh, they're getting uh, young folks ready to go and volunteer with the Peace Corps. And uh, when he's working with those young folks, he knows what he's talking about because he is a returned Peace Corps volunteer as well. And Jane Kolodinsky, uh, professor and chair of the department, the same department, I won't give it <laughs> the wordy title <laughs> three times in a row here. Uh, and... Um, uh, she joins us as well to talk about the uh, overall approach. And Jane, I, actually, um, I'm, I'm curious how how did your department uh, sort of step to the fore here in Vermont and, and become sort of a hub of uh, Peace Corps connectedness here? I love that question. Um, so Peace Corps, the Peace Corps recruiter, I had to do some real sleuthing. What goes back all the way to 1986. That's when uh, we had the first contract, and that was in a department of agricultural economics, and there was an international development major. And here we are all these years later, and we still have a community and international development major in our department, um, and that was the start of the Peace Corps recruiter. The um, Coverdale Return Peace Corps volunteer graduate program is, uh, is relatively new, and our newest program is the uh, Peace Corps prep program. It all just seems to fit with our mission, our vision, and the way that we look at community development, not only locally, but globally. And um, in the Coverdell program, when, when people come back from, uh, from, from Peace Corps service and they are, uh, this is, these are folks who come back to, back to UVM for graduate school, right? That's correct. They, um, there to become a Coverdell program, and when Co- when we applied for Coverdell, they specifically wanted programs in um, in leadership and and agriculture, and so ours was a, a really good fit with that program. And then the, the students do get six credits um, that they they can take for at no cost in that program, and they actually do a, a write up or. A, uh, remembrance or uh, an analysis of their time in the Peace Corps and how it fits into their degree. And that degree is either an MS in community development or a Master of Public Administration. Six graduate credits at the University of Vermont. That's a nice, uh, a nice thing to get for free. What do you, what do you actually need to get the master's, uh, a master's degree in, in the programs you were just describing? How many credits? Um, how many credits? They're both 36 yeah. credit, uh, credit hour programs. Okay, so uh, you're a sixth of the way. <laughs> in yeah, terms you're, of, a, uh, you're a sixth of the way, um, and you know, but you also have a, a cohort and of um, of professionals and peers that uh, have the, the same mission and vision that you do. Um, and in fact, our Peace Corps uh, volunteers come back. Our recruiters come back and do so many different things um, when they're when they finish with their degrees. Um, from executive director to professor, Travis, you know, we have David Connors, a professor, to lawyers, to CEOs, to operations research managers. I, I mean, they really come back, uh, use their undergraduate degree, use their Peace Corps experience, use their graduate degree, and then go on and continue service to their communities. Vermont is ranked as the number two top Peace Corps volunteer producing states, uh, state in the, uh, per capita basis, uh, of, and, um, I'm wondering, uh, who's number one and, uh, what do we need to do to beat them? Oh, wow. I, I can't answer that question. Maybe Travis or, um, Mary can, but we have, um, we have such a small population, <laughs> so it's easy to yeah. get to per capita, but, um, and, you know, yep. we're number four from all of medium-sized schools. I don't know who's number one. Travis, do you know, Mary? Travis, do you know? 
Mary? I believe it's D.C., Washington, D.C. That, that is correct. Uh, it's Washington, D.C. That kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that does make well, sense. What? <laughs> Yeah, Washington D.C. has a lot of folks who are who are steeped in the whole government service idea, and uh, so that would uh, that that fits the picture. Now that you mention it, uh, should have guessed that. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, this is uh, actually from from some information provided uh, very kindly uh, um, by the uh, Cal's folks up there as I was putting together some some information to uh, learn a little bit about this uh, about UVM's uh, role. In uh, Peace Corps recruitment, and, uh, uh, and Mary, I was I, I was wondering your sense of um, uh, you, you, do you have any sense of why Vermont would be uh, uh, a leader in in getting folks to uh, to join the Peace Corps? Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with value and what Vermonters or students who are going to school in Vermont value and. Um, getting involved in sustainable community development, um, grassroots community action, um, cultural exchange. I think these are all um, values held by Peace Corps and also values shared by a lot of Vermonters. In, in terms of um, uh, your own situation there, Mary, what motivated – first off, are you, are you from Vermont or, or uh, from elsewhere? You know, I'm from Long Island, New York. I'm not originally from Vermont, but I love Vermont. I think it's gorgeous. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. A Vermonter by choice instead of a Vermonter by birth. So, <laughs> hey, uh, and, and, and Mary, what, what motivated you, to, you personally to join the uh, Peace Corps? And uh, how does this uh, fit in with your life and career plan and so on? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm what you would call a legacy Peace Corps volunteer. My father served with Peace Corps in Chile in the 80s, and my older sister served with Peace Corps in Cameroon in, um, around the mid-2000s. And I was really inspired growing up hearing about my father's experience, um, how that impacted his life, my sister's experience, and I really am passionate about community development, getting community members involved in how their community functions, and Peace Corps was a really incredible opportunity to be welcomed into a community, to be supported um, through the trust that I was able to build with my community members and my friends, and I hope to use my Master's in Public Admin to continue on this path that I've been on for service. Um, I was also an AmeriCorps volunteer. So, yeah, community service and uplifting, um, you know, marginalized voices to have a more impactful um, programming within communities. And when when you went to Jamaica, did you uh, sort of move into an office or something that had been vacated by a previous Peace Corps volunteer? Well, that's a good question. So I was actually the first volunteer to serve in the community where I served in the Blue Mountains, the community of Cascade. Um, So I was the first volunteer of Peace Corps that they'd had in over 25 years. And I didn't have an office. I lived with a host family. 
Um, and my main goal was, again, integrating in the, into the community, building relationships, building a sense of trust and the foundation that volunteers after me could be able to build upon and have a more impactful service by that feature of trust and relationships. Travis, talk to me a little bit about your Peace Corps experience and, and uh, um, tell refresh me now, where, where, did, where did you go and, uh, and uh, what kind of work were you doing when you got there? Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to think back on this. Uh, so like Mary, I was the uh, first volunteer in my um, community. It was in uh, eastern Senegal. Um, so Senegal, right, okay. In French, French West Africa, French speaking. Um, mm-hmm. It was a uh, Pular community. Uh, for, for any Pular speakers, speakers out there, Nombada Araceli, Nogali Mawadi. And uh, the uh, focus of my work was on uh, agroforestry, so integrating trees into um, oh, right, small-scale right. agricultural production. You, uh, uh, you mentioned that. And, 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 um, uh, and, and you, uh, you come out of the Peace Corps, and, and now you find yourself in academia. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, was that a straight path, or, or were, were there some intervening, uh, intervening years and intervening work there? <laughs> uh, so not a straight path, um, and not uh, really the original goal. Uh, so I'm from the Northeast Kingdom of um, Vermont, and had um, some extended family involved in um, work in Sub-Saharan Africa, but no previous Peace Corps volunteers, um, and was really interested in international uh, development as a as an undergraduate student, as a young person, and um, sort of saw the Peace Corps as a way that um, someone without a whole lot of monetary resources could uh, access a uh, really supportive infrastructure and get that international development work experience and then be kind of on a path towards working for the UN or working for the World Bank or, or, or something like uh, that. And um, the Peace Corps definitely uh, provides that supportive infrastructure, like like Mary um, mentioned. It's it's no small thing to be able to evacuate thousands of young people um, and make that happen and happen quickly and happen safely. Um, there were countries in the early 2000s um, that were evacuated as well for a variety of reasons, um, but it uh, it also was very much an experience that made clear to me how much uh, small-scale farmers everywhere have in common uh, in terms of working with very limited resources, often working with not supportive uh, policy environments, often working with these huge economic forces uh, that are not in their favor. And uh, it was really that kind of experience that put me on the track of getting graduate degrees in community development and applied economics or and then a PhD in public policy and management and, and really focusing on uh, the role of um, government and the rules and policies that we make in helping or hindering the ability of small-scale farmers, be they in Vermont or in sub-Saharan Africa, to, to do well. Hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, did you speak fluent French before you went, went over there? 
<laughs> yes, so I was a French major as an undergrad, and uh, in my um, in my community there were probably. Uh, for people who spoke French. Um, so French is the, the, the national language, but the, the language of business is Wolof, and uh, the language um, of um, my community was, was Pular. Yeah. And w- what about Pular? Did you have any training in Pular before you got to where got to the community? Yeah, so like Mary mentioned, it's a it's a 27 month service appointment because there's a a three month training uh, and then a two year service commitment. And that three month yep. training actually is um, mostly in country, and so you're taking uh, language courses and you're taking um, uh, cultural awareness and interaction courses. Um, you're taking safety courses and health courses uh, really on a very full-time basis for that three-month period. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I had a, a crash course in Pular and then a lot of learn-as-you-go experience. Yeah. What What are some of the um, – Mary, Mary, I'll put this question to you. Uh, what are some of the, of the health and physical requirements for Peace Corps volunteers? I know that uh, there are some limitations that way, right? Yeah, you know, part of the application process is going through a pretty um, lengthy and intense medical background check. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I can necessarily speak to the requirements because it's pretty personal and um, a lot of volunteers with pre-existing conditions are able to serve. Um, there's no checklist of physical attributes you have to have in order to be a volunteer, Um, but they do want to ensure, you know, that volunteers are healthy and are aware of the resources they need in order to remain healthy in service and ensure that the Peace Corps headquarters of that country is um, prepared to offer the necessary um, support for volunteers. And, and Mary, how, how many uh, how many Peace Corps volunteers uh, were there in Jamaica when you were there? That's a great question. So my cohort was made up of about uh, thirty volunteers, and then mm-hmm. we also had the cohort that was there before me, um, which was again about thirty or so volunteers. And then additionally, um, there is the opportunity to stay on for a third year of volunteer service or to stay on for a third year as a volunteer leader. Um, so I, I believe that the total amount of volunteers in Jamaica when I was there was about like 75. Wow. Okay. And, and, um, um, and talk to me a little bit about what you know uh, it, about the, sort of the rest of the Caribbean in the case of I mean, Jamaica is in the Caribbean and it makes me wonder uh, you know, our, our, our folks in St. Kitts and, and Grenada, Grenada and, uh, other, uh, other part, other countries there as well, or, uh, is Jamaica kind of a regional hub? Do you send folks out from there or how's that work? Yeah. So the Caribbean region, so there's, um, regions where Peace Corps serves and in the mm-hmm. Caribbean, there's, um, the Dominican Republic, then Jamaica, and then the Eastern Caribbean, which includes um, St. Lucia, um, 
Jane, let me ask you if I could, uh, or maybe I'll put this question uh, to, to uh, Travis, uh, in the uh, who's with the uh, the Peace Corps prep program at UVM. If somebody is a high school uh, senior right now and is saying, "Okay, I'm planning on going to the University of Vermont next year, and I would like to uh, would like to uh, join join the Peace Corps uh, before I'm uh, too much older or whatever, maybe as I come out of my undergraduate work and get ready for uh, an, some kind of a inter uh, inter period between the uh, between the workaday life and uh, my college studies or whatever." Um, what should they be thinking about, or how would they how would they plan their UVM academic career in order to best prepare themselves for Peace Corps service? Yeah, absolutely, and thanks for asking. That's that's exactly what the Peace Corps prep program tries to do is is to capture these uh, these young people who have heard of the Peace Corps or think they might be interested in the Peace Corps and provide some information and guidance around uh, this is how to make yourself have the strongest application you can uh, from your undergrad degree. So we've got programs in agriculture, in community economic development, in education, in environment, in health, and in youth uh, development. And for all of those programs, um, there are recommended courses, there are um, uh, connections with previous students who have um, either expressed interest in those fields or uh, gone on to apply for those uh, types of service experiences. Um, and then for other sort of general requirements, we do, uh, for the Peace Corps prep program, require everyone to take uh, at least three uh, courses in uh, diversity, uh, so in interacting with diverse groups, uh, be they international uh, or uh, studying domestic uh, issues. Uh, and if somebody to wants three, to... Uh, yeah, I want to interrupt because we're just, just about out of time, but one last question, which is if somebody wants to check this out like online, where would, what's a good website for them? Oh, totally. Um, so you can just uh, search for Peace Corps Prep uh, at UVM, uh, and we're in the CALS uh, uh, directory. It's a long web link. Happy to post it uh, online. Uh, oh. But if you just search for Peace Corps Prep at UVM, you will find us. Sounds like a good idea. Mary Balecki, Travis Reynolds, Jane Kolodinsky have been my guests this last uh, 45 minutes or so. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. That's about it for today's edition of the Dave Graham Show. Tune in again for our program tomorrow. Meanwhile, stay tuned for Bill Sayer Common Sense Radio next up on WDEV, FM and AM. And have a good afternoon, everybody.